This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. With Melbourne in lockdown again, we all know that there is popularity in having pets. And Eric fits the bill in Amanda Hampson's Lovebirds. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Amanda, what type of pet is Eric? And why has Elizabeth just recently got him? It's not that clear to the reader for the first couple of pages because Eric is her companion. I think I managed to stretch it out to the end of page two. He's a budgie. You really Oh, good. (laughs) I wanted Elizabeth to have a pet because she lives alone. And I think if you live alone for any length of time, you start to talk to yourself or you start to talk to inanimate objects. And she says later in the book that she got him because she didn't hear her own voice all day. Because if you don't speak to those inanimate objects, you don't speak at all. So she's felt the need for companionship, and that's turned out to be Eric. Something else has gone terribly wrong for Elizabeth. Virginia has died. Where did these two characters meet? They were good friends. They met Elizabeth or Lizzie, as she's called in the past, came to a new school, which was something that she did fairly regularly. Virginia became her best friend. So they were those I wanted to show them as those friends that you have at school that they're kind of practice for your first relationships. You know, you spend every minute together. You know, you spend all your breaks at school together and then you get home and ring each other until your mother shouts at you to get off the phone. So, yes, they were very, very close uh, confidants throughout their whole lives. Now, here you've cleverly manipulated the names to give us this feeling of way back then and right now. That was a very clever thing you did with Lizzie in the past and Elizabeth right now. It took me a while to work out just why. So when did that concept come to you? I often do that because I'm an Amanda, but all my family call me Mandy. So I have a whole cohort of friends who are old friends and close family friends who call me Mandy. And, and it's kind of it feels a little bit sad to me at the moment because my dad died a couple of years ago and I thought, oh, there's less and less people calling me my girlhood name. Because as you go into professional life, you call you, yourself by your full name and then a whole new group of people know them. So I felt that calling her Elizabeth in the present and Lizzie in the past, as she would have been called, worked for the reader. Well, now this book has two important letters, one at the end explaining why her husband left her and one at the beginning from Ginny. What did Ginny want Lizzie to do in her letter? Ginny's letter is what's called a deathbed letter, which is rather sort of 18th century and theatrical, but it's a letter that Ginny left uh, to be given to her friend after she died. And it basically said that um, Elizabeth had done a number of things, handled some of her relationships in a way that her friend didn't agree with. And she loved her too much to, to not support her. But she gives her the mission to go forth and actually repair the, the damaged relationships within her family. And that's the catalyst for her journey. So reuniting the family. Now, she's blamed one daughter-in-law Claire for her son Tom's downfall but it's her own stubbornness has meant that she hasn't sort of kept in contact with her grandson Zach for 12 months so now she's been asked to look after him and I must say the dialogue or the conversation between 
Lizzie and the school principal was wonderful. Oh, good. (laughs) She brought in her own professional qualifications and had this honest talk. So, Zach, what was he like? Well, Zach's a 15-year-old adolescent and they are a boy and they seem to be remarkably similar because you have the the monosyllabic uh, conversations, the, you know, people complain about them grunting. Obviously, I didn't put grunting because that's not really dialogue, but there's lots of shrugging, lots of being in his hoodie. And he, he was a lot of fun to write and the rapport between them was really fun to write because it had to evolve throughout the narrative. And I had to reduce everything that he was going to say to three words or even better, just one, delivered with contempt and, and, and get that sense of contempt in those things that he said, that kind of dismissive way, because 15-year-old boys know everything, obviously. I'm going to do a quote here. His pizza arrived and he worked it over with the efficiency of a waste disposal unit, doubling each slice and folding them sideways for maximum input speed. I think anyone who has seen a 15-year-old boy eat a pizza, you described it beautifully. Now, one thing led to another, and it is Zach and Eric the Budgie in the car with Lizzie driving to Lennox Head in northern New South Wales. Why is she driving there? She So she becomes uh, responsible for Zach, but he turns out to be a lot more elusive than she had thought. She thought her old rules would work, mm-hmm. but he's got a curfew. Uh, he's not allowed out. He's been in trouble with the law. Next thing he goes to the skate park and she finds herself running around the skate park mm-hmm. trying to get him home for his curfew. But because he doesn't consider that out, out, mm-hmm. that's just out. So She wants to go on this trip to find out what has happened to her husband, Ray, whom she hasn't seen for 30 years. Zach only agrees to go if Eric goes. So the three of them set off. So Zach is very much a reluctant passenger. And in some ways, Elizabeth is taking him as an excuse. She's still trying to work out in her mind, am I taking him as a mission to meet his grandfather or as an excuse, because I, I want to see Ray and I want to settle things with Ray. That's the, the mood in which they set off on this trip. Through the flits back into the past, we know how Liz and Ray got together and how everything was going so well until 1970, when he was called up. Amanda Hampson, you, you certainly have done some research here with the problems associated with this group of enlisted men. Look, I had to read, even though we don't go to Vietnam, we stay in Sydney with Liz as she's waiting for Ray to come home. His, his number came up. He was conscripted. We see before he went the enormous potential that he had. He was interested in everything. He was learning things. You know, the world was just there for him. And then he comes back and he's damaged. But for many, uh, I've read a lot of books and I actually had the script, uh, the manuscript read by somebody who works with uh, vets with PTSD to just clarify that I had this exactly right. A lot of the symptoms, they may have revealed themselves immediately, but they may have been dormant for 10 or 20 years. And it's not uncommon that men that went and women as well then kind of succumb to the trauma of what happened to them. So it's very much about Elizabeth's side of it, how she handled that and dealt with that as it came along. 
Another quote from the book, it's as if there's a current running through him. He snaps and sparks at every little thing and his eyes are clouded with uncertainty. And at another time, an old man in the body of a 22-year-old. So Ray was in Vietnam with Baz and now that's where Zach and Lizzie are. They're up with Baz. <laughs> How were they greeted by Baz? Well, so I thought with Baz, okay, he, he sort of emerged on the page, as characters often do, and they just take over the show. They talk louder than everybody else. They're more of a loose cannon than anybody else in the book. And that was Baz. So I knew that Ray would have a friend somewhere he could go when he wasn't feeling well, somebody who knew what he'd been through. And Baz has come to live a very eccentric life. He's kind of losing his sight. He lost his foot, left his foot in Vietnam. But he is probably a person that had ADHD right from the beginning because he's got a very short attention span. So the first thing that happens is Elizabeth and Zach come into the house and hear a shotgun fired and end up hiding crouched behind the sofa. So, you know, my idea once I got them on the road was to find a way to level out their relationship. So Elizabeth is in charge, Zach's the mutinous fellow almost kidnapped on this trip. But once they're behind that sofa, Zach, who is very experienced with Call of Duty, starts to say, well, if we had this and that weaponry, we could, we could melt him through that wall. And Elizabeth's saying, we don't want to melt him. He's a family friend. So we start to see Zach coming into his own and Elizabeth asking him what what he should do. So it brings a shift in their relationship. We should also mention Baz has got a goat called Vladimir. So a road trip continues and now it includes Baz and the goat into more remote hinterland, less places to stay and more interesting characters. Why is Zach amazed with Susie? Uh, isn't it always the case when you go into regional uh, Australia and you find people living in quite isolated places that do interesting things? So Zach has lived a very much an online world as a 15-year-old and then he finds Susie does taxidermy. Initially, he's very interested in how they are killed and Elizabeth's worried he's going to volunteer his services. But then he just becomes fascinated with the whole process and, and her sort of creativity behind it. So the next part of the road trip includes all of the above and a knife, a frozen rat and a beginner's guide to taxidermy. Their final destination, and you will, you'll have to read the book to find out just where that is. But as uh, Baz says, if this was a movie, a gang of misfits, road tripping across the country, sleeping rough, eating off the land, a woman, a man, a boy and a goat and a budgie searching for a man called Ray. The chapters of now are intercepted with the backstories and we get a wonderful snapshot of times and thoughts. Lizzie had been to three schools before Nullabara but never to Sydney. What did her parents want her to do? I think in the 60s it was generally thought that education was a bit wasted on women. I know there's a lot of women that did degrees then, but they were really from much more middle-class families than most of us grew up in. At that time, getting a job was considered to be most important. You know, our parents had lived through the war, many had lived through the uh, depression and getting a job was important. So they wanted her to work in the grocery store and that it was a family, they're very keen on the idea that it was a family business and she would take over there. That wasn't to be. 
and didn't want her to mix with Ray. He was Catholic, he rode a motorbike, and he was older. But his, his parents were also rather difficult too. Yes, I think it's, it's quite interesting to just look back at what parenting was like then. He has a mother who, who left and disappeared when he was a child and he was put in a boy's home for a time. Then his father married again. Ray came home. But uh, he's, he had a very harsh father. As many working class migrants were, very harsh uh, with strong sense of discipline and a very strong sense of what their children should be doing. Uh, for most of us, our parents were management. We were told what was happening. We were doing this. There was never any discussion or any thought behind it. And they were in charge. So this is really, I think, very typical of the time. Jump back now, and it's also difficult with parents and children. Tom separated from Claire and Zach, as you said, in court for arson. And then her other daughter-in-law, Melissa, has her own family who were close and cosy and well-behaved. And Lizzie always, always felt uncomfortable, clumsy and foreign with them. So she's missing out on their children too. Now, just as I said, there were two letters. There's also two funerals, one at the beginning and one at the end. And Lizzie asks the question of quite a number of people, do you have a song? Amanda Hampson, do you have a song that you're planning for your funeral? <laughs> well, to me, the whole idea of having a song is to have a sense of who you are in the world. And so it is a, it's very much a metaphor through the book where she's searching for, as a lot of older women are, who am I now? I was young, I was lovely, I was desired, I was in love, I was married, I was the centre of my children's life. Now that's all gone. Who am I now? It's as if we uh, are put on pause in our self-development through those years. So she is really looking for this new theme in her life which emerges in a, a sort of different way in the last um, page of the book. Well, in their youth, lovebirds Elizabeth and Ray had to fight to be together. Conscription altered their happiness, and Lizzie now has to fight her own stubbornness, a bizarre road trip to reunite her family in Amanda Hampson's Lovebirds. Thank you very much for such an enjoyable read, Amanda. Thank you for having me on the show. And now it's David's turn. The moral dilemmas faced by adults and even children come to the fore in Kelly Rimmer's The Warsaw Orphan, which is set against the backdrop of war-torn Poland, a city first occupied by the Nazi forces of Germany and then by the communist forces of Russia. So, Kelly, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. It's lovely to speak with you. To say this is a war story might be doing the novel an injustice. You set the focus in the very first line. The human spirit is a miraculous thing. It is the strongest part of us. I mean, you find hope despite overwhelming odds. And, and so this is a story about resilience. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, and that in my research, I kept coming across these stories about people who were living in conditions that seemed all but impossible to survive on a psychological, emotional, even physical level. And yet not only did they survive, they they grew and they they found ways to thrive in what they could. What also struck me and 
it's probably a false comparison, but surviving against the odds when governments make decisions that separate people, divide people, which we sort of have faced today, not quite to the same extent, um, but when governments make decisions, close borders, do all of those sorts of things, families are separated. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, you know, the circumstances are so different, but we we are living in chaotic times once again, and there are always there are always parallels, aren't there? Even if the even if the magnitude of what you're facing is different, the, there's always parallels we can draw. Now there are two threads that work in your story. First, we meet Roman Gorka, and then Amelia Slaska. And these are two children with very interesting backgrounds. Can you expand on their backgrounds a little more? Yes, certainly. Um, Amelia is living in Warsaw in an apartment building just a few blocks from the Warsaw ghetto. She is living with her adoptive parents, Truda and Mateusz, and they are potentially on the run. They're not certain that they're in danger, but there's a good chance that Amelia in particular is in danger because of some decisions that other members of her family have made. And so they decide that she should live pretty much contained within the walls of that apartment for her own safety and also under a false identity. So she lives in this weird purgatory of maybe she's in immense danger, you know, at risk of execution any minute, and maybe nobody's even looking for her. And just in case, she really has no freedom whatsoever, but she is a teenager and she's kind of at that stage of life where you're pushing boundaries and you're trying to figure out who you are. So she begins to rebel just in little subtle ways. And on the other side, we have Rahman, who is a, a young Jewish Catholic boy. And he is living with his family within the walls of the Warsaw Ghetto. So just a few blocks from Amelia, but his circumstances are, you know, there's no question he is living in impossible conditions and his future looks incredibly dire. But again, he's a teenager. He is impetuous and impulsive. And at times he really struggles to control his emotions. In many ways, they highlight the ridiculousness of what was going on. I mean, Rahman being both Catholic and Jewish, people could live together and yet this arbitrary division is drawn. Yes, it is an absurd proposition that because of a person's religion or heritage, they would have a different worth. And But to the Nazis, of course, they had a, a hierarchy of racial worth and the Jews were right at the bottom and Rahman's mother was Jewish, so he was considered Jewish and so he's imprisoned you know, in this, in this living hell. Now, the perspective of the children is what makes this novel so important. You build on the notion of the human spirit because as children, they're establishing their own identities, but they have to forego their natural instincts in many ways. I mean, Rahman doesn't want to make friends. Amelia is told to be paranoid. It's counterintuitive in many ways for children growing up. Yeah, I think at any time in, in 
even in peaceful times, parents have to make decisions to keep children as safe as possible. And it's, it's a balancing act, even in normal calm times, what do you allow children to do versus, you know, what, what is just too risky? And that line moves all the time. I mean, even through the pandemic, we've seen cities in lockdown where children are not able to socialise in the way that they normally would. And I actually thought about that a lot as I was finishing the novel because we were, it, I was actually finishing the very final draft while we were in lockdown, even in New South Wales last year for that brief period of time and I was thinking about if this went on for a long time how do you raise healthy adults and thinking about the decisions that Raman's parents and Raman was making and, and Amelia's parents and Amelia was making how do you at the end of the day we the reason we're keeping the children safe is that they're the most important kind of aspect to humanity for the future but you also need to raise healthy children and so I have I was kind of funneling some of those thoughts again the magnitude of the situation is very different but trying to think about what it would have been like for those families judging and assessing risk and raising healthy children in an environment like that but teaching them to lie in order to save themselves it's the opposite yes. of what we want children to do normally absolutely absolutely and even you know i mean most most parents would try and instill in their children the value that you know you need to be compassionate and when someone is in trouble you need to help them and yet those instincts in children in wartime are incredibly dangerous and so the the, the rules change a lot when the world is that chaotic now amelia helps sarah one of the social workers who goes into the ghetto and she has to, again, overcome her natural instinctive reaction when she faces the horror of what she sees. I was about to confront a level of suffering that could not be aided by my efforts. And no matter how successful my attempts were, it would never be enough. You know, facing situations you can do so little about. Yes, I know. And um, I mean, just one person, you know, can one person make a difference? Well, if there's enough one people trying to make a little bit of difference, it can collectively make a difference. I mean, Amelia and Sarah's story is loosely based on the real life story of Irena Sendler, who was a Polish nurse and social worker who, you know, was just one woman who gathered a team of individual people who saved the lives of over two and a half thousand Jewish children. So, you know, you, it, it's a really big question, but, um, but our, where is our individual responsibility? And Amelia has to grapple with that because she 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 has an instinct to help because she's been raised in a family where people helped people but when she's walking through those ghetto gates she realizes what she's kind of thrown herself into and what sarah and amelia are doing are smuggling children out of the ghetto and this raises another interesting moral dilemma do you keep a family together or do you split families up to increase the chance of one of them surviving? Yes. Yes. And and for those families within the ghetto, it, you know, they were there was no clear information for such a long period of time. They were many people were still hopeful that the conditions would improve. And even once the deportations began, many people thought that they were being moved to more spacious, comfortable camps in the east. 
And there's there was a sea of rumors for years and years within the ghetto. And so it wasn't like there was a, you know, an announcement that the Nazis were deporting people from that environment to execute them. That kind of that was not something that was really well understood until much later. So for those families with very young children and small children, they had to decide between taking the risk of keeping the children with them in case what came next was worse or sending them away and entrusting these children into the care of complete strangers, um, setting them outside the ghetto walls where, I mean, those, those children were Jewish, you know, it wasn't like they were going to stop being Jewish the minute they left their families. And so they were still in immense danger. I, I really struggled to imagine how people made those decisions. And yet, of course, they had to, they had no choice. And this is where the two storylines converge because it's Roman's sister, a baby, in fact, Eleonora, that is smuggled out by Sarah and Amelia. Yes, that's right. She's a, a newborn baby. She's very young. And, of course, uh, the rations that were given to the people within the ghetto were, were an insult. They were not, not survivable levels of nutrition. And so, um, so Roman's mother is struggling to breastfeed this child and the child is already malnourished. And, but the family is very close-knit and Roman's um, stepfather and mother are quite keen to keep the family together. And so they, they have to grapple with all of these decisions. How do you best pr protect this child and how do you give her the best shot of life? Roman also has a moral dilemma to face. He actually has a chance of escaping the ghetto because of his mixed upbringing, Catholic and Jewish, he might be able to pass as Catholic, but he chooses to fight. And this poses the notion of, well, one's individual safety or fighting for one's national identity. Yes, that's that's correct. And for, for a young man like Rahman, who is a member of a very loving, close-knit family, even when there's the option of potential escape, you know, what are you escaping for? For him, he's a young man who's living for his family. So it's to him, it seems like there's no kind of life without them. So um, I was really fascinated by that because I had no, no idea about the diversity of the population within those ghetto walls until I started researching. But there were thousands of Jewish Catholics and there were three thriving Catholic congregations within the ghetto walls itself. And so I kind of wanted to explore identity is very rarely black and white. I mean, the Nazis like to reduce it down to, to your Jewish and that's, that's enough that, that, you know, there's a target on your back. But identity is rarely that clear cut. But this is where you actually provide a sense of hope amongst all of the moral absurdities that we're seeing. Because identity is not that clear cut, we end up in many ways with the notion of an extended family. One of the enduring images at the end is the love of a child. Truda was holding Anatole in one arm, singing quietly as she stared down at him. I didn't see his smile, but I saw her reaction to it. Her entire face lit up and she looked at me with tears in her eyes. I'm not going to say where Anatole is from, how he was conceived, but there's that beauty of a child which goes beyond all of these moral absurdities, identities and government decisions. It is the fundamental thing that keeps families and society alive. 
That's right. I think life has a way of reminding us that there's there's some hope for the future, particularly even sometimes we need to fight for it. But a newborn baby, I mean, it's hard to hard to see a newborn baby as anything but pure and innocent. And and so it's even the symbolism of that to me was really important that a newborn can represent hope regardless of any of the circumstances of their of their arrival or their upbringing children are the children of the future it's cliche to say but that's just the fact of it but it doesn't matter what faith they are what nationality how they were conceived they are what beauty in their own right absolutely absolutely well Kelly, I'm afraid I'm going to have to end the interview there. It's a fascinating insight into the Warsaw ghetto, Warsaw and Poland for that matter, and the struggle to keep hope alive. I think more so because it's from the children's perspective. So the novel is The Warsaw Orphan. The author is Kelly Rimmer, and it's a Hachette release. So, Kelly... Thank you very much for talking with me today. Lovely to speak with you, David. Thanks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.